The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. One in five Australians experience uncomfortable symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is commonly referred to as IBS. Today we speak with Dr. Michael Levitt, who is a general and colorectal surgeon at St. John of God Subiaco. Dr. Levitt has a particular interest in the management of functional bowel disorders, including constipation, incontinence, and irritable bowel syndrome. Dr. Levitt is extremely well published, and his most recent book is appropriately titled The Happy Bowel. We're with Dr. Michael Levitt, and we'll be talking all things irritable bowel syndrome. So thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. What is irritable bowel? Okay, so irritable bowel is a group of conditions that predominantly affect the large intestine, the colon and the rectum. And in certainly my practice, or virtually every case of irritable bowel that I see is related to the workings of the large intestine. Now, the large intestine is a muscular tube and it has a smooth lining. The smooth lining is responsible for absorbing water, a little bit of salt, a little bit of protein, but predominantly the surface lining of the large intestine absorbs water. It's the muscular tube that is the most important part of the large bowel. So the muscular tube is responsible for propelling the contents, and that's what we call feces, and propelling it along the colon towards the rectum and then out the anus, during which time the water is absorbed by the lining. Now, irritable bowel syndrome refers to disorders of the propulsion of content of the large bowel. In other words, it's a disorder of the muscle function of that, or the function of that muscular tube. So people tend to focus on large bowel diseases that are primarily a disorder of the lining cells. So things like colitis or so inflammatory diseases, things like uh, polyps and cancer. These are disorders arising from the lining. They're things that you can kind of see with the naked eye, with a colonoscopy. Uh, but Irritable bowel syndrome refers to disorders of the way the muscular tube contracts. Maybe it contracts in uh, an excessively vigorous fashion that produces bursts of urgent bowel motions and embarrassing trips to the, you know, running around trying to find a toilet. Maybe, maybe the muscular tube is underactive, producing bloating and, and constipation and the need for laxatives. Some people suffer from a variety of irritable bowel where they get, they swing from one of those extremes to the other and other people the pattern is just one of predominantly uh, uncoordinated muscular contraction producing pain so it's a range of different disorders of the way the muscular tube of the large bowel works we call that dysmotility and then why do some people suffer it and others may not ever suffer it in their life well i suppose you know why is the sky blue really i mean it and why do some people end up with uh diabetes or asthma or hypertension and other people don't it, in fact it's an interesting question yeah. because what it reflects the question reflects the, the the kind of inherent belief that our bowels should somehow work naturally yes. so we have this kind of widespread belief in society that we have like a constitutional right to a spontaneous daily bowel action and if we don't have it we've got to get the prime minister on the line and say why isn't this happening for me you know it's your fault 
But the truth is that the same people that come to me complaining about why have I got this irritable bowel syndrome are taking tablets for hypertension and, and uh, insulin injections for the diabetes, puffers for their asthma, and don't ask the same question, well, why, why have I got asthma, why have I got hypertension, why have I got diabetes? The bowel malfunctions in some people. Uh, the difference in irritable bowel syndrome is that the malfunction is rarely life-threatening. It's just very, very annoying and inconvenient. Yeah. And does that malfunction just happen at one point in their life or you know as a child they might say listen I, I used to have no problems going to the toilet or as a teenager and then suddenly this happened in my life or a certain time in my life then I started having issues is that quite common? Yes it's all those patterns are common there are for example the pattern of sluggish bowels constipation that that version of irritable bowel syndrome that we sometimes call slow transit constipation is much much more common in women than men and in the majority of those women, versions of that same condition can be traced back to early adult life or teenage life and sometimes even to childhood. So there are some people whose bowel dysfunction appears suddenly, midlife, late life, for no particular reason or no reason that's obvious to, the, to us. But other people, it's a, long, a lifelong pattern that comes and goes. I've had people come to, refer to me with intractable constipation and I've sent them off for particular, with particular treatment and the next time I've seen them, they, to their complete shock, they, they find they've got the reverse. So in other words, it's an unpredictable sequence. How do you actually get diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome? Well, I think the, the, the most important thing is the, the pattern of the symptoms. Mm. They are reasonably characteristic. They are often uh, spread out over months and years rather than very recent onset of weeks. In other words, if symptoms that have been present for a matter of weeks and have appeared out of the blue are the ones that tend to alarm us a little more. But someone who, whose complaint has been present or recurring over many, many years is much less likely to have a serious and progressive condition and you're much more likely to attribute it to irritable bowel syndrome. But if there's doubt and if there's good reason to investigate, then a colonoscopy is a, a u very useful test. And so basically, basic blood tests and a colonoscopy can generally separate those people who are likely to have something serious and potentially progressive uh, and those who are likely to have irritable bowel syndrome. Now, of course, there's, a, there's a, an overlap. There are people who've got subtle malabsorption syndromes and things like celiac disease are a good example, is a good example, who sound like they've got irritable bowel syndrome and the colonoscopy is normal and blood tests may be pretty well normal and, and so they can get diagnosed and treated as irritable bowel syndrome until the penny drops at some stage during the course of their uh, illness and we realise that there was a, uh, something else underlying it. And do people just tolerate sometimes symptoms for an awfully long time when really they should be seeing their doctor? Is it something they go, yeah, I've had this all my life, not been able to go to the toilet regularly or this or that? Do you see patients that have just tolerated having an, an irritable bowel for a long time when really they should have seen a doctor? So, yes, I do. People, But often there are two sort of uh, causes. One is the fact that people are incredibly reluctant to talk about their bowels. Now, I think lots and lots of people have an inherent uh, sense that they're not sick and that what they've got, by virtue of the fact that they've had it for so long and it's recurred and it's come and it's gone, they realise that they're not sick and they don't absolutely need to bring it to attention and who wants to go and see anybody and have talk about that and even worse who wants to go and see a doctor and be examined down there mm. and so all, for all those reasons people might say let's just hold on to it mm. 
But it's also true that people will bring their symptoms to medical attention and not get good advice or not feel like they've been taken seriously because their problem isn't dangerous um, and and be put off. So that, that their, their one and only encounter with someone who's supposed to provide a therapeutic uh, th- who's supposed to provide therapeutic advice is not a good encounter and so they just say okay well I'm not going to try that again so there, there are a number of reasons why people can hold on to it for a long time and what are the symptoms then that after a certain period of time they really need to go they should go and have that discussion with the doctor well I think any of those symptoms they should have a discussion with the doctor for how long do you think people should tolerate and go actually that that's not normal you should go and have a chat with your doctor well I Okay, so the, there, there are two parts to that question. One is, one is, okay, what are the symptoms that say this is dangerous? Yes. You could have something, you could have cancer, you could have colitis. And I think that, you know, uh, red flag symptoms include bleeding, um, blood mixed in with bowel motions, uh, a recent change in bowel habit, let's say over around about a four to six week period, weight loss. Uh, if you are examined, the presence of a mass in the abdomen, there are and of course other high-risk symptoms or symptoms of high-risk people such as they've got a family history or maybe they've previously had polyps or cancer of the bowel there are those red flag situations are are pretty clear and actually there's quite a lot of public awareness about them now Um, I think that that if anybody with irritable bowel syndrome whose symptoms are not related to anything serious if they're fed up with their symptoms, they should seek, it, seek attention. That's as simple as that. If, you, if it's not bothering you a lot, then, well, if it's not bothering you a lot, it's probably you may not be inclined to embark upon any particular treatment because treatment for irritable bowel syndrome doesn't, isn't always perfect. And, you know, sometimes it produces some occasional, you know, bumps along the way. If you're treating people with, you know, frequent loose bowel motions, then the treatment might, might momentarily end up giving them the reverse problem. Uh, if they're not really bothered by the symptoms in the first place, you know, why would you seek treatment? But yeah. most people that come to see me are absolutely, totally mm. bedeviled. They've, they've, they've had enough. So. Yeah. And would they be in pain? Is it extremely painful? Some patterns of irritable bowel syndrome are painful, and, but, but the usual dominant symptoms relate to difficulty getting bowels to work, i.e. constipation, or the reverse excessive frequent urgent bowel motions and difficulty holding on now both patterns are associated with pain um, but it is more often the 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 difficulty with evacuation or the difficulty the social problem created by urgency that that are most bothering to them yeah and so what is the difference between ibs and ibd okay so So IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. That's a disorder of the muscular tube, exactly what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, IBD refers to inflammatory bowel disease, and that is a collection of uh, inflammatory diseases, typically ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and they are um, um, immunologically mediated inflammatory conditions characterized by ulceration of the lining of the the intestines Mm -hmm. with uh, diarrhea, bleeding, pain, infection, uh, genuinely serious conditions. So you've been diagnosed and, you know, you've been treated. Are there ways that you can actually prevent having an irritable bowel? So I think that people, everybody on the planet has, has a kind of a, 
uh, let's say their, their large intestine is wired in a particular way. Yes. Uh, we are kind of just geared to respond to all the different stimuli, whether it's exercise or diet or stress or drugs or medications. We're kind of geared. It's like a black box and everyone's is slightly different. Mm-hmm. And you could feed the same stimuli, the same diet, exercise, stress, medication into into 100 people and they'd each re- respond in 100 different ways. Their bowels would respond. So I think people who have irritable bowel syndrome are kind of wired for that. And you can't prevent that wiring. Mm-hmm. However, people with irritable bowel have, will all know that there are certain things that's, that provoke uh, the problem, that, and and they can learn to manage that problem. But more often than not, and this is the thing that finds the hardest part in treatment, is just getting someone to accept that they've got enough of a problem that they might need to take something for it. Mm. The same, as I said to you before, the same people who pop pills for blood pressure will will point blank refuse to take anything for their irritable bowel because they just don't think the bowel they. You know, they think the bowel should work naturally and they shouldn't have to do that. So rather than prevent it, I think, you know, my approach is to manage it and to, first of all, accept that there's a problem, acknowledge acknowledge it it and manage it. And then once that's done and there's a lot of positive reinforcement that comes back. So the patient who has got uh, the pattern of irritable bowel syndrome characterized by urgency where they have to drop everything and run to the toilet will often find that when they're away from home and either subconsciously or even consciously anxious about the fact that gee i hope my bowels don't work now because i'm not near a toilet where i'm familiar or where i where i'm familiar with where the toilet is even that worry is likely to escalate their risk of getting urgent bowel motion so the fir- the more anxious someone becomes about the prospect of having an urgent bowel action the more likely they are to get one so if you can then provide them with appropriate treatment or medication, let's say, that slows their bowel down, then as they leave the house, the fact that they are completely confident about their bowels means that the the stress that often exacerbates their symptoms is not there. Yeah. So what are the current treatments for IBS out there? Well, if we talk about the fundamentally, the, the, the treatment works best if the pattern is one of predominant constipation or predominant frequency. Those individuals whose bowel pattern in irritable bowel fluctuates from one to the other are really hard to treat because the moment you treat the constipation you create with laxatives, you create urgency and diarrhea. But the moment you try and treat urgency and diarrhea with an anti-diarrheal like loperamide, which most people know as Imodium or GastroStop, but there, there are lots of other different versions of it. But if you treat the loose bowel motions with loperamide, then that person might lurch straight back to being constipated. However, fortunately, the majority of people are predominantly overactive or predominantly underactive. Now, if they're predominantly overactive, then finding the right dose of loperamide is almost always a simple solution to the problem. It really is an incredibly effective medication. It's just a matter of finding the right dose. And for some people, especially women, that dose can be absolutely minute. Um, and for uh, some people, it can be larger. Uh, as it relates to the pattern of underactivity or constipation, or what we call slow transit constipation, then 
then laxatives are required and laxatives are a bit of a dirty word um you know the the when when I talk to people about laxatives, I, I think that they are anxious that the, you know the federal police are going to be knocking on their door. And you know most pharmacists are, are really well inf- well informed about laxatives and and will direct their patients the patients to the non habit forming ones in the first place. And and the other thing that pharmacists will do is that they'll get, quickly get a sense whether this is somebody who's just out of the blue taking laxatives and might therefore have some new development and so and, and they'll question somebody who's coming back so there look, occasionally there are people whose irritable bowel syndrome symptoms are due to some underlying endocrine disorder let's say a thyroid disease and the you know coming to a colorectal surgeon the chances of getting an accurate diagnosis of thyroid disease is quite small but let's just say i pick that uh, then and we treat someone then who knows it knows the condition well, treats their thyroid disease, then their bowel problem is fixed. I, I don't know if that's happened to me at all. I think some, I've had a, one patient, I think who had parathyroid disease uh, presenting as constipation and that with other assistance of other people got detected, treated and the constipation went away. But really for a true irritable bowel syndrome, which is 99% of the patients that I see with those symptoms, it's not cure, it's management. And you know that that you know, I often say, use the example that, I mean, I've got high cholesterol. So there you are, there's, a, there's, a, there's an important revelation. Uh, I've had it for a long... Like so many people yeah. in. And I've had it for a long, long time, and, and I have to take medication for it. And I don't really like taking the medication, not because I have an objection to taking medication, but it produces some side effects and muscle soreness. Yes. But every time I stop it and, and then remeasure my cholesterol, it's outrageously high. So I have to be on it one way or another. And so I just say, I can, I can hope that I'll wake up tomorrow and my high cholesterol will not be there and I won't need to take tablets anymore. But that's ridiculous because I know from that from 30 years of experience and numerous attempts to get off the tablets that actually that is not what's going to happen. So I say to my patients, you can hope that tomorrow your irritable bowel syndrome will you'll wake up and will be gone. But if you really want, if your symptoms are bad enough, then you will manage them more aggressively. And once they've got the tools to manage them, then provided that does give them the symptom relief, they'll keep going. What about the evidence of, you know, when we all see it on the television, you know, take this vitamin pill for IBS or, you know, what's your thoughts on, you know, the probiotics and all these other sort of complementary... Well, it's a really interesting thing that in Australia, the, the threshold for making claims is very low for supplements. So supplements can kind of go on TV and you'll see, you know, famous sportsmen advertising them and their claims are, are vague, but, but, if you, but, but, but clear enough to the uninitiated as to think, wow, that's amazing. Here they are, we're on primetime TV and they are saying it's going to help this condition. Now, because the treatment that they're providing is innocuous, it, is, it has got very little positive effect, but very little negative effect, then the standard in Australia for those, is low for those claims. Okay, it's not dangerous. You can kind of say that. Don't, don't say too much. Now, if you're providing a, a simple medication for the, and looking for a higher level of, of um, authorization from the TGA, you have to be able to absolutely prove your claims. So those supplements are uh, safe, but largely ineffective. Mm. And, and people spend quite a bit of money on them. Now, as for probiotics, that's probably the very best example. Yes. 
because probiotics uh, have very little proven benefit. Now, that's not to say that they might not be beneficial, but the proof of the benefit is very, very flimsy. And the only the only area in which we recommend probiotics is for people who are taking antibiotics in the hope that the, by taking probiotics, they will reduce the risk of getting antibiotic-induced diarrhea. But beyond that, there truly isn't an established ev- evidence-based um, benefit for them. Yeah. So a, p- a lot of people take probiotics. Yeah, they do. A lot of doctors will say, you know, you'll know you'll be dehydrated. You just look at your wee, and if it's very yellow, you drink more water, and they'll simplify it right down. Similarly with your poo, is it, you know, if you're really tolerating and your, you know, your bowel movements are either extremes, which we've talked about, um, either you're constipated or you're suffering directly, you know, is that when you really should, and, and those times are more often than not, is that when you can assume, I don't think I have a happy bowel, I need to go and speak to my doctor about this, you know, is it something that we really need to, it can be as simple as that. Okay, so the consistency of a bowel motion, whether it's very hard, dry, pebbly, yes. or whether it's very soft, wet, watery, or even sticky, they are significant symptoms, but they are often not the, the main reason that an individual seeks attention. Mm. People on the constipated spectrum are much more likely to seek attention because mm. they, have, they simply cannot get their poo out. Yes. And they're struggling and straining and experiencing a lot of difficulty, and often they have complaints of abdominal bloating and distension that go with it. On the other side, people whose bowel motions are soft and sloppy... It's not the consistency that drives them to come and see me. It's because of the, it's happening frequently, urgently. They're having to. It's disrupting their schedule. They've lost confidence in their ability to get out of the house. So it's not that the how often we go to the toilet and the consistency of our feces is nowhere near as important as, to individuals as how easily they open their bowels and how completely empty they feel when they leave. So if a person opens their bowels once a week, but it's easy to do, and they leave the toilet feeling empty, they are very unlikely to consider themselves abnormal. Yes. And is there long-term implications for ignoring, for having dysfunctional bowels? Is there, you know, can it impact our health long-term and cause cancers or, you know, bigger issues for us for our health? Yeah, so there's absolutely no link between the time it takes poo to get around the large bowel and the risk of cancer. The, the incidence, so transit time in the, the large intestine is consistently slower in women than it is in men. That's not every woman or every man, but the truth is if you took uh, um, a large sample of the population, of adult population, and you measured how long it takes bowel motion to track around, to track around the large bowel, we would find that there is a very clear uh, separation between men and women. Women are slow and sluggish, and men are fast and fruity, and that's the way it is typically and yet the incidence of bowel cancer is slightly higher in men than in women and certainly for colon cancer it's very close to 50 50 so that there doesn't appear to be any particular association between transit time and the cancer risk Uh, is the retention of bowel motion in the large intestine for long periods of time is that uh, you know, this concept of the building up of toxins, etc. That's a very, very old-fashioned concept developed in the late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. And that's where doctors 
made this astonishing conclusion that there appeared to be a link uh, between um, the, the um, um, insomnia and depression and low libido in women. And they also made the, the observation that constipation was more prom prominent in women. They made an incorrect observation that none of those were problems in the third world, in the developing world, that women weren't um, insomniac, uh, depressed, low libido or constipated because none of those things were, were true. But they made this, they came to the conclusion that it was the constipation that was driving the insomnia and depression. And they developed this theory of auto-intoxication. So looking back now, you look at that and you think to yourself, how the hell did kind of the best people in the world think that up? Well, you know, I, I've, I've trained in surgery through an area where we operated on people with peptic ulcer, and now we just treat it with antibiotics. So I think that things change very dramatically. So that, that then led to this concept that you had to flush the toxins out. And that, that is a widely held misconception to this day, that there is this kind of, you know, these toxins are in there. Now, the safest place in the entire body for poo to be is in your large intestine. That's where it belongs, and that's where you don't get toxins. And is that where also that concept is why people go, oh, I need to go and cleanse my colon. I'll go to these colonic cleansing and it'll be all good. I think that's what drives people because yes. they, because they because they're not feeling well and they think that's the toxins that's clean it out. But actually, they do they feel better after they've been cleaned out. So I I have I don't have a strong objection to it at all. The first of all, an empty bowel is a happy bowel. That's the that's absolutely the truth. Yeah. Those clinics are look they're expensive and that they're expensive because the the people who staff them are, are highly qualified. They've got registered nurses and a variety and. The reason that they're popular is not just because the emptying out makes people feel better, but the person who's uh, applying it is someone who seems to care, someone who takes a history, um, probably quite time. spends time, is quite interested in, in the nature and the origin of the problem. Uh, and uh, far too often when you seek um, more traditional medical attention, and, and I'd probably put myself in the same category, you just people just won't spend this enough time with you, won't take a detailed history, won't find out about you. Mm -hmm. There's a long time you spend in a colonic lavage clinic. They, it takes a while for the fluid to go in. So I'm, I, I think that the, the problem there is just one of, is it a sustainable treatment? But as a once-off, that person's probably going to feel momentarily quite a bit better. So what are sort of three tips that we can sort of finish on to having a happy bowel? Well, I think that the number one, the, the, the absolute golden rule, uh, what I call the 11th commandment, yes. is that you should never, ever sit on the toilet until the urge to go is powerful. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's all well and good if you are, like most men, and some women able to easily generate a powerful urge, mm. but it's absolutely vital to get to the toilet with a powerful urge. And so if you're not capable of that, then you need to take something to help you to get there. Mm -hmm. So getting to the toilet with a strong urge is important. And I suppose the other golden rule is that the producing firm formed bowel motions, like the consistency of an unripe banana, mm -hmm. although not that color, um, but that, that is also important. So a, a strong urge and a solid stool is likely to result in a bowel motion that's prompt and effortless and brief and complete, and they are all the things that make a bowel action a really enjoyable experience. Mm. Is there certain things we should be eating? 
So I think that we should all, what we should eat, what we should be built upon general health principles rather than bowel principles. Yes. And so the, in general, I don't think I'm telling, saying anything that, that much more expert people. Well, people, we tend to eat too much. Too much uh, uh, no, no, we tend to eat uh, as a society too much fat and too much carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- they unfortunately contribute to a whole range of health conditions much, much more serious than irritable bowel. Um, so fruit and veg and protein, they all need to be well represented in our diet as much as possible. Um, if you've got irritable bowel syndrome of the sluggish, slow tra- transit um, sort, then pushing up your dietary fibre is only likely to result in more bloating and not that much help with, with, as a laxative. Fibre is a very gentle laxative. So, so for, for women predominantly, it is women with slow transit, I, I tend to get them to wind back on their fiber you know by the time they've come to see me they've seen lots and lots of people who've told them the same thing eat more fruit eat more veg eat more fiber on fiber supplements you know eating more fiber than the average horse and they just need to slow that down and because their bloating is very unpleasant Mm. now for people who've got the reverse which is an overactive bowel and high stool frequency and urgency and soft bowel motions it may be that we can intervene by reducing dietary fibre, but I, because fruit and veg are good for you, mm. uh, I'm reluctant to make too much of a manipulation there. The, the, the one meal where I do tell people to consistently reduce their fibre, if that's what they're complaining of, mm. is breakfast. Oh, because we, we, we can really jam that's, that sort of you know, high fibre and, and insoluble fibre like mueslis and similar types of breakfast cereals. And if you've already got an active bowel, that is completely unnecessary. So there are relatively few circumstances where, on account of a bowel problem, I tell patients you need to actively increase your dietary fibre. There are plenty of situations where I tell them they need to reduce or modify their dietary fibre, but I don't like telling people to stop dietary fibre because it's so important for general health. People just tend to think that, that the equation between what you put in your mouth and what comes out your bottom end is simple and straightforward. But it is absolutely not simple and straightforward. There's a lot that happens between the time it enters your mouth and the time it comes out your bottom end. And, and so just manipulating what goes in the top end is simply not ever going to be enough to sort the problem. Yeah. And, what about, and what about water intake? Is it definitely the eight glasses of water? So I'm not a a strong adherent of that belief. I I think if you just took a straw poll of people walking up and down the street and said, here's a couple of litres of water, you know, uh, mineral water, Mm. uh, I want you to, I'm going to ask you to drink them now. What do you think is going to happen? And I'd say 99 out of 100 would say, well, I'll be peeing for the next three or four hours. So when we drink a lot, we tend to pee more. When we drink a lot, it might have an impact on the way our bowels work. But, mm. but it's a very, there are, there are, again, a huge number of things that are going to happen between, from the time that that water enters your mouth to the time bowel motion exits your bottom end to that water that may or may not impact on your bowel. So, I, I, again, you know, somewhere situated deep in our brain is a, I think it's in the pituitary gland, in our pituitary gland is a thing called the thirst centre. And when that thirst centre is... Yes, that's right. So uh, if you're thirsty, you should drink. (laughs) And on that note, very practical tips. Thank you so much for joining us today. The pleasure. A big thank you to Dr Michael Levitt, who consults at St John of God Hospital in Subiaco, for giving his time and sharing his specialist knowledge in IBS. To learn more about Dr Levitt and St John of God Hospital Subiaco, visit sjog.org.au.
www.ibs.com.au. And if you're suffering symptoms of IBS, it is always good to speak with your doctor. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.